You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 5. If you're new to the church, we, uh, we go through the New Testament on Sunday mornings. We go uh, through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. And uh, right now we're in the book of Luke. And we are beginning that section where Jesus is thrust into his earthly ministry. And in chapter 4, we saw a brief summary and overview of Jesus' mission and the purpose of his coming. It was to preach the gospel, he says in verse 18 of chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That was Jesus' purpose. And then he shows the result of what the gospel brings. He says, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And so these are the results of the gospel, and we looked at that last week. And now in our section this morning in Luke 5, 1 through 11, we are given the appropriate response to the message of the gospel. In our text This morning we see Jesus calling Simon, or we know him better as Peter, and his brother Andrew, who although not named here, is in the parallel texts in Matthew 4 and in Mark chapter 1. He calls Peter and he calls Andrew and their business partners, James and John. He calls them out of normal, everyday living to follow him, to be used by him, to serve him. And their calling to follow and serve Jesus gives us a glimpse, gives us a a picture into what it means to be a follower and a servant of the gospel. And in reality, this section defines Christianity. It's what we want to talk about this morning. This section before us really defines Christianity. It paints a picture of, of what Christianity is. And I want us to take note of seven truths about Christianity in our text. Now, before you start looking at your watches and thinking, man, Ryan normally has three points. That's more than double. How long are we going to be here? Don't worry. We'll, we'll make some of these points quick. Seven truths about Christianity in our text. The first thing is that it is available to common, ordinary people. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, So it was, as the multitude pressed about Jesus to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, the same body of water, and two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's or Peter's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And the first thing that I notice is that Christianity is available to common, ordinary people. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? That God is called the foolish things of the world. And when you look at the life of Christ, and you see the people that Jesus associated with, even in his birth, he was born into a small, hick town in the middle of nowhere to a poor family. And that's who Jesus came and identified with. And, And when you look at his life, Jesus identified with sinners constantly. The religious leaders were like, why are you hanging out with these people? They make you look bad, Jesus. They're not giving you a good reputation. We see with his disciples, 
that they were a group of ragtag men, a lot like David's mighty men in 1 Samuel. Just people who society didn't look at with a great deal of respect. They weren't the influential, they weren't the intelligent, they weren't the famous, they weren't the rich fishermen and tax collectors, even an insurrectionist, a a man who was rebelling against the Roman government, which is hilarious. Only Jesus would have a tax collector who worked for the Roman government and an insurrectionist who was rebelling against the Roman government in the same team, on the same leadership team. That's awesome. That's the church. And these are the kind of of people, common, ordinary, blue-collar people that Jesus reached out to. People like us, people like you and me. Common, ordinary people. He identifies with us. That's Christianity. Christianity is for everybody, yes. But the beautiful thing about Christianity is that you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be influential. You don't have to be a who's who. Christianity is for the common, ordinary man and woman. A second thing I notice, a second truth about Christianity in our text is also found in verses 1 through 3, and that is that Christianity is a response to experiencing Jesus and his teaching, to experiencing Jesus from the word of God. Look what it says. It says the multitudes pressed about Jesus. Remember we talked about that Jesus is attractive that people wanted to be around him, that they were drawn to him. I don't even know if they quite knew why, but there was just something about him that they wanted. And you know what, you guys? That's what I want in our church. That's what I want in my life. I want people to be attracted to us because of Jesus. He draws people. And as the people are pressing about him, Jesus sees two boats sitting there. One of them belonged to Peter. So he he asks Peter to push the boat out a little bit, and Jesus uses it as a floating pulpit to get away from the crowd a little bit for natural acoustics. And it says he sat down in the boat, which was the accepted position of a teacher, the posture of one teaching, and he taught the multitudes from the boat. He, He used this opportunity where people were coming out in droves. He used this opportunity not to entertain them, not to get money out of them, but to teach them. And last week we talked about preaching and the importance of preaching the gospel and that in the church today, the word preach kind of has a negative connotation, like a guy just screaming and spitting and flames shooting out of his head. And, and, and the question you're asking is, who's he mad at? That's what we think of when we think of a preacher. But preaching is just proclaiming. It's heralding the message. But there's also the place for teaching and that teaching is so vital to the health of a church. Not only preaching the gospel and heralding and proclaiming the truth, but also simply teaching the Bible simply. Giving people a steady diet of theology that comes forth from the word of God in a way that can be digested and disseminated easily. And and that that word would go down into our hearts And take root and then produce fruit in our life. And Jesus sets the example. He is the model for us of teaching. You you see it throughout the Gospels that when people gathered, Jesus taught them. He taught. He didn't entertain. He didn't wow them. He taught them. And you know what? Christianity 
is a response to experiencing Jesus from the teaching of the Word of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That the Word of God is where we experience Jesus. And that if you are not a Christian here this morning, if you have never had a relationship with Jesus, the way that your relationship with Him will get started is in response to the Word of God. In response to that faith that is fueled by His Word. You don't have to be an expert in the Word, but you're going to respond to His Word. And if you are a Christian here this morning, and you want to have growth in your life, and you want to draw closer to Jesus, it will come about as a result of hearing the Word of God taught, soaking up the Word of God personally, reading it, studying it, applying it in your life. That's where growth comes from. And if you look at your life and you think, you know what, I've been a Christian now for a decade or more than a decade, for years, and I haven't seen a lot of growth lately or maybe ever. I've kind of hit a plateau and I'm just not growing. In fact, I, I think I'm going backwards. And it's a result of not feasting and feeding upon the word of God. Not personally having a hunger for his word. And if you don't, you won't grow. There won't be growth. Christianity is a response to experiencing Jesus from his word and from the teaching of his word. By responding to the truths of the word of God. A third thing that I notice about this text and a a third truth about Christianity is that it is an act of obedience. Look at verses 4 and 5. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And we have to picture the scene. Jesus is out a little ways from land. He's been teaching the Bible which, by the way, is a, is a sermon I would love to have on podcast. I mean, how amazing would it have been to hear Jesus teach the Bible? Think about Luke 24 and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus taking them through the Old Testament, pointing out the, the, the things that, that point to him. But Jesus has been teaching them, and Simon's in the boat with him, and Jesus says, why don't you go out a little further, out into the deep water, And throw out your nets and you'll have an amazing catch. Now something we need to remember is that Peter was a fisherman from day one in his life. It's all he had known. He grew up in a fishing family. He was an expert. He was a professional. Jesus was a carpenter. He wasn't a fisherman. And you know when people that you don't respect in in a certain way give you advice about something that you consider yourself to be maybe an expert or very experienced in, and they're not, and they begin to tell you, you know, maybe you're a carpenter, maybe you're a builder, and, and if I came to you and I said, hey, you know, you ought to do things this way, and I, I mean, I can't even give an example because I have no idea, you know, what, what that would even entail. But maybe I said, you know, you ought to use uh, these kind of nails, you know, number 952 instead of... This guy, you know, if, and, and you're just like tuning me out. You're just thinking, come on, stick to your day job. 
and, and I'll do this. And we've all experienced that. Maybe you were an athlete and you had a sibling that wasn't and, and they are giving you advice on, on how to play sports. And at that point, it's, it's like the parents on Peanuts. You know, Charlie Brown's mom and dad through the phone, just like, wah, wah, wah. You're not listening to a word they're saying. It's just like, ah, I'm tuning you out. I've had people do that with, with Bible teaching. Start telling me how to teach the Bible, and I'm thinking to myself, dude, have you ever even taught the Bible at all? Am I supposed to glean from you, you know? It's pride is all that it is, but we all have that. We all have that where we tune people out, where we don't listen to them because we don't respect them. Clearly, Peter would have been experiencing this. A carpenter telling a seasoned fisherman how to fish. Jesus, let me tell you something. We fish at night, and then you come in during the day, and we rest. We've been fishing all night long, and we didn't catch anything. And you don't fish in the deep water in the middle of the day. You fish in the shallow water in the middle of the day, if anything. So even if we were going to continue fishing, which I don't really want to do, but even if we were, we would fish in the shallow water, not in the deep water. All of these thoughts would have been running through Peter's mind. I'm sure he was very close to saying them. We know that Peter was, was never at a lack for words, but Peter begins to think about what he knows about Jesus. And I want you to know something. This isn't Peter's first experience with Jesus. Peter had been hanging out with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist had been pointing them to Jesus. Even in the last chapter, we saw Jesus at Peter's house healing his mother-in-law. We know from other gospel accounts that Peter had been with Jesus previous to this point. This is just where Luke chooses to launch things from. This is where Peter would be given his call to ministry. But he had already experienced Jesus and he'd already seen that Jesus isn't just the average guy. And his growth would come in stages. The epiphany that he would have about who Jesus is didn't happen all at once and it really wouldn't come to completion until after the resurrection. But this is not Peter's first rodeo with Jesus. And so I think as he's about to say something, as his pride is welling up, he's, he bites his tongue and he thinks, you know what, I'm going to do it. And Christianity is an act of obedience, even when it challenges our pride. And clearly this challenges Peter's pride. He is a professional fisherman. You know when you, you're a one-trick pony? I kind of feel like that. I'm a, I'm a one-trick pony. I, I've got no skills. I can't build anything. I'm not a great athlete, even though I love sports. I mean, I can play, but I, I'm not super intelligent. I'm a one-trick pony. I can teach the Bible. You know, and people say, oh, man, I wish I could do that. And, you know, I wish I could play the guitar. I wish I could, you know, build a house. I watch people do stuff, and I think, man... I can't do anything. I mean, Andrea bought these little shelves the other day. They're like little floating shelves because our bed's super close to the bathroom door and there's not really room for an end table. So I put these shelves up. It's like a fiasco, you know? I mean, your four-year-old child could do this and, and I'm struggling. Just, it's horrifying. I but I, I'm a one-trick pony. I got one thing I can do, and I don't even think I do that very well. And 
Peter, I think, was a lot like that. This is his one skill. And Jesus, you're going to tell me how to do it. Can't I be good at one thing? Can't you listen to me in one area? You build your sheds and your fences and your decks. I'll do the fishing, okay? But he swallows his pride and obeys the Lord. It would have been a good lesson for Saul, who in his pride refused to obey the Lord. And Samuel said to him, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is at the heart of Christianity because God says to you, you are a sinner. You are separated from me. You are on a collision course with my judgment, with eternal damnation. And I want you to obey my commands, which is to confess me as your Lord, to admit your need for me. And once you do that, then your walk with the Lord is just one step and act of obedience after another. Daily, obeying the Lord instead of your flesh, instead of what you want to do, obedience. It challenges our pride. Obedience is often inconvenient. Peter had been fishing all night long. Think about that. 12, 14 hours of just pure labor. You've seen the, the, the fishing shows on TV, the commercial fishermen how hard they work. And that's with all kinds of technology and, and machines to do a lot of work. This was labor. Don't picture Peter out with, with a fly rod, you know, drinking a Diet Pepsi, eating some pretzels, talking to James and John about the playoff game that's on later that day. Don't, don't have that in mind at all. This is work. These nets were extremely heavy. Each one of them would have, would have been about 100 feet in length, and they would have spread them out in a semicircle. And then as the nets sink down and the, the fish are collected, then they would begin to pull. And you, you've done things like that. If you've ever crabbed, if you've ever pulled in a crab pot, that's one little crab pot. I always feel like a wimp. You know, when you go on those commercial fishing boats and you got these guys and you're trying to impress them, you know, and they want you to pull in the crab boat, crab pot. And you're like struggling. It's just like, you know, like, do you need help? Oh, no. I got this covered. No worries, buddy. That's just one little crab pot. This, this huge net. They're pulling it in all night long over and over again. Finally, they, they come in and they're just excited to clean out their nets, get the debris out of it, get their fish off to market go home for a while so that they can go do it over again. And now Jesus wants me to go out and fish in the middle of the day in the deep water. This is asinine. I'm exhausted. Guys, we have to think in terms of how we would relate to this. If you're a salesman, it would be like going out and beating doors all day long, making cold calls, walking neighborhoods, talking to people, not making one sale. Eight hours, you get home and and Jesus says, you know what? I know that it's now five o'clock and everybody's eating dinner and they're going to be super ticked when you knock on the door. But I want you to go out and I want you to, to go and try to make some sales. Jesus, I was out all day in the prime time and nobody wanted it. That's what is going on here. This is, this is ridiculous to Peter's sensibilities. It's inconvenient. 
He was exhausted. And that is what Christianity is. It's an act of obedience. It challenges our pride. It's often inconvenient. And this act of obedience doesn't necessarily make sense to us. But we have to put aside our preconceived notions, put aside our experience, and obey God because he's a lot smarter than we are. And even though Jesus in his humanity was a carpenter, he was the creator of every one of those fish. And he could put them in the deep water or the shallow water or right in the middle of Main Street if he wanted to. And Peter is beginning to realize this. And so Christianity, it's available to common, ordinary people. It's a response to experiencing Jesus and his teaching. Thirdly, it's an act of obedience that challenges our pride, that's often inconvenient, that doesn't necessarily make sense. And the fourth thing about Christianity that I see in our text this morning is that it is the work of God. Christianity is the work of God. Look at verses 6 and 7. And when they had done this, that is, dropped down their nets, even though they didn't want to, and even though it didn't make sense, and even though Peter felt like an idiot doing it, probably looking around, is anybody looking at me? I'm going to get laughed at. Puts down his nets, and they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And so Peter throws out his net, and I can just picture he's thinking in his mind, okay, Jesus, I'll do this for you, but this is a waste of time. He throws out his net. He's got all his guys. They begin to pull it, and all of a sudden, the net is overflowing with fish, and Peter is blown away. There's so many fish, he has to call in the other boat that was still anchored to the shore. Signals, come on out. And so James and John bring their boat out. And both boats are overflowing with fish to the point where they're sinking. Now, these aren't little dinghies. In fact, they found a boat from the time of Jesus at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And it was about 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide. This is not a little tiny boat. This isn't a rowboat. This is a big boat, two of them sinking from the weight of the fish. And do you think that Peter thought to himself, look at what an amazing fisherman I am. I mean, how awesome am I? Guys, see what we can do. See what Peter and the boys fishing company can accomplish. That's why you're on my team. Oh, Peter's thinking, what in the world? I've been fishing my whole life. This is the biggest catch we've ever had. In the middle of the day, in the deep water, this is ridiculous. This is astonishing this is amazing and peter recognized it was the work of god yeah he was a part of it i mean had he gone home and not listened to the lord this wouldn't have happened had he not thrown out the net certainly they god wouldn't have blessed him he was a part of it for sure but he had nothing to do with the results he just got to go along for the ride and that's christianity it's going along for the ride and you know what too much of what we think of Christianity has to do with me trying harder. And I don't want you guys to leave here today thinking that Christianity is about you trying harder, that if you want to be a successful Christian, that you need to try harder. You guys, Christianity isn't a diet where you discipline yourself and and you, you work really hard at it. Christianity is simply... Entering into the blessings of God. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2 
says that salvation is purely the work of God. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. Do you think Peter was boasting about this? It was the work of God. He recognized that. It was purely the work of God. And any fruit or any work that we do as a response to what God has done in our life is simply us entering into what God has already accomplished. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that. That we are his workmanship. His poema in the Greek. His poem. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which have been prepared beforehand. That you might walk in them. Does that sound like labor? Works that have been prepared beforehand. That you might walk in them. I mean we all wish that our work was that way. Right? That you just showed up to work. Everything was done. You said hey that's cool. That's great. And went home. I don't want to make it sound like that, that we're not involved in our faith. But I want you to understand that to be a successful Christian does not necessitate you trying harder. You working at it more. In fact, that's the problem of why a lot of people quit and bag it. Because they do look at it like it's a diet. And I mean, man, you gear up for a diet, right? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut cows. I'm going to cut fats. No more fast food. I'm going to exercise, and you weigh yourself that first day, D-Day, all right. Get on there. You don't tell anybody else. You just log it in your mind (laughs) of what it is, right? And then a week later, you stay off of it because you want to be excited. You stay off the scale for a week, cutting cows. The day comes, you get on that scale, always in the morning, always naked. (laughs) You weighed yourself clothed, but now you're naked, you can't wait. And you, if you, you know, the, the scale's going, it's, it's, it's leveling out of the digital thing. If you've got one of those scales that tells you like your body fat and stuff, those are from Satan, by the way. I, don't, I think they're wrong. I don't know how they read your body fat from your feet. But <laughs> mine said 8%. You believe that? <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> Um, and you, you, you wait, and there it is, and it comes up, the number, and you haven't, not, you haven't lost pounds, you've lost ounces, maybe four or five ounces, in a week, and you think, this is stupid, forget it, I'm back on Twinkies, fast food, couch potato, hey, this is a waste of my time. Because it was about you and discipline and trying harder. That's a diet, but Christianity is not that. See, and if you're trying really hard and you're working up a sweat and you're disciplining yourself and you don't see growth, in fact, you see yourself going backwards, then the tendency is going to be to bag it, to quit. But you guys, it's not about you trying harder. It's about you entering into what's already been done. Christianity is the work of God, pure and simply. The work of God. A fifth thing, a fifth truth about Christianity in our text is that it is rooted in humility. Look at verses 8 through 10. When Simon Peter saw it, saw what? The great catch. The boat sinking under the weight of the fish. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. The fifth thing about 
Christianity is that it is rooted in humility. It's rooted in humility. Now, often you'll hear people say, I'm praying that God would humble me. I'm praying for humility. Now, that's fine to pray. You may not like the way that that comes about because humility is the result of humiliation, of brokenness. It doesn't feel good. But in reality, humility is not something God gives us. It's something that comes about as a natural byproduct of seeing who God is. And that's why the Bible says, humble yourself under the hand of God. The Bible says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, Jesus humbled himself and took on human flesh. And he set the precedent for what Christianity is. It is rooted in humility. God expects, demands humility from us. And pride is an affront to God. Pride is the opposite of worship. Pride says, I don't need you, God. I can do this all on my own. I'm just fine. But see, Peter, in response to this amazing catch, in response to this miracle, doesn't think to himself, my goodness, this is going to be the most profitable day we've ever had. I can't wait to get this to market. I hope the market's good today on these fish. Peter's not thinking of the reputation it's going to give to his business. Peter's not thinking about that he'll be the talk of the town. Peter is absolutely driven to his knees because he recognizes his own sin. You see, the, the, the miracle made him see who Jesus was. It was an epiphany for Peter. He saw who Jesus was. And in seeing who Jesus was, he no longer cared about anything but Jesus, and he no longer saw anything except his own sinfulness. He was blown away with how amazing God is and how wretched he was. Much like Isaiah, who in chapter 6 of the book that he wrote, encountered the Lord. He experienced God. He saw him as he had never seen him before. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And what did Isaiah say? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. For five chapters previous to that, Isaiah had been writing woes to the nation of Israel, challenging the people because of their lifestyle, because they had turned their back on God. And and Isaiah, rightly so, but he's challenging the people. He's confronting them. But now, now when he sees Jesus... Now when he sees God in the temple, the train of his robe, the glory of God, he's no longer concerned about the nation of Israel and all of their shortcomings and all of their weaknesses and all of the sin. What's he concerned with? His own heart. See, that's what happens when you encounter Jesus. And that's why churches that aren't experiencing Jesus are filled with gossips and filled with people who are self-righteous and looking down on others. And churches that are experiencing Jesus are filled with humble people who recognize that they are wretched, poor, blind, miserable, naked, and destitute. That's what encountering and experiencing Jesus does. It brings humility. So I don't need to necessarily say, God, make me humble because I'm so stinking prideful. I don't necessarily need to do that. I need to just spend time with Jesus. And it's a natural byproduct. 
And so if you're a prideful person, which we all are, and we all have that proclivity, and it's nasty, and it's ugly, and I hate it. But if you're a person who just has pride exuding off of you, you can taste it. If you're that kind of person, the reason is, is because you're not spending time with Jesus. You're not experiencing him. You're not seeing him fresh. And maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and pride has crept into your life and you're self-righteous. Oh yeah, you're living morally right. You're a good guy. You're a good gal. People respect you. You're not involved in any major sin, but you're also not involved in any intimacy with Jesus whatsoever. And you're filled with pride and self-righteousness and a judgmental attitude. God's not pleased with that. God's not happy with your moral platitudes. God wants a relationship. Jesus wants intimacy with you. And humility will be born out of that. Where We're no longer looking at others. You see, Peter, he's focused on Jesus after this. A sixth thing about Christianity that I notice in our text is that it is ultimately about loving people. Look at the end of verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so here's Peter. Here's Peter absolutely blown away by the miracle. Absolutely astonished by what Jesus has done for him. And he turns his eyes upon himself. He had experienced Jesus like never before. And instantly Jesus says, okay, enough of that, Peter. Enough introspection. Enough looking at your own heart. You are wicked, Peter. You are a miserable failure. You are a sinner. But Peter, don't concentrate on that. There's no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Peter, take your eyes off yourself and start looking at others. And see, when you experience Jesus, initially, you'll juxtapose yourself with God. And you'll recognize, man, I am a miserable, wretched person. But that should be brief. It should drive you to the cross, which will then drive you to others. And that's what Jesus says to Peter. Look, I'm calling you out of the mundane. I'm calling you out of the common, ordinary life. I'm calling you out of what you've always known and what you've always done. And Peter, you will no longer fish for fish, but now you're going to fish for men. Now you're going to seek to preach the gospel, to point people to me. And you guys, that's the same calling that each and every one of us have, to love people, to reach out to people. See, that's what humility does. Humility drives you and gives you a passion and a love and a heart for others, a heart for the lost. Does our heart break over the the lost people in this community, the people that are dying and going to hell apart from Jesus? Does our heart break? That's why we want to be involved in events like I Heart Prineville. Do you have a heart for people? If you don't, you have to, to ask yourself, Have I experienced Jesus lately? Because Jesus was all about others his entire life. And I look at my own life and I'm just so disgusted with my own selfishness. And I look at Jesus and I see how others minded he was. Even on the cross where he's hanging, having been beaten to an inch of his life, hanging on a cross, blood pouring out of every orifice of his body, his back being shredded, dying of asphyxiation, trying to get air into his lungs, struggling, blood coming out of his nose and out of his mouth. 
on his last breath, Jesus says to John, in a, in essentially, take care of my mother. Thinking of others while hanging on a cross. Jesus was all about others, about loving people. Christianity can be boiled down to loving God and loving people. And the way that people will see that you love God is by you loving them. That's what 1 John is all about. How can you say you love people? How can you say you love God whom you've never seen if you don't love the person standing right next to you? Your greatest opportunity to be a worshiper of God, to be a lover of God, is to love people. Your greatest opportunity to demonstrate that you are a Christian, that you are a follower of Jesus, is to love people. And that's what Peter is being thrust into. That's what you've been thrust into if you've decided to follow Jesus. The seventh thing, the last thing, is that Christianity involves sacrifice. Look at verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. They bring their boats in. You can picture they just barely make it back to land. The things are sinking. There's fish flopping out of the sides of the boat. Peter doesn't say, let's get these babies off and sell them. Peter isn't thinking about lining his pockets. Peter's not thinking about the newspaper article that's going to be written about him. The ads, the publicity for his business. Let's get pictures. Let's make a photo op out of this. Let's have a press conference. He's not thinking of any of that. It says, they got to land, he forsook all. He said, you know what? Give the fish to the poor. Give it to my competitors. I don't care. I'm going to follow Jesus. Christianity involves sacrifice. Too little of what our perspective of Christianity is has anything to do with sacrifice. But Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That means sacrifice. It means death to self. That's what God wants from you. He sacrificed himself, and now he calls you to do the same, to identify with him in his death, to sacrifice your life, sacrifice your time. We're very selfish with our time, aren't we? We, we work, which, by the way, God's not calling you to quit your job and go around carrying a cross around the, the United States. God's calling you to take your responsibilities as a, as a husband, to provide for your family, as a wife, to take care of your family, to nourish and to to raise your children. He's calling you to do that in complete surrender to him, to go to your job and do it for his glory, to wash that dish for his glory, to change that diaper for Jesus, to do that mundane task that you hate doing for Jesus, to forsake all, to forsake your selfishness and to live for him. But our time, we're very selfish with our time. And we work or we we do our responsibilities and now this is my time. And nobody's getting inside of my time. This is for me. We're very selfish with our money. I earned it. It's mine. I worked hard for this. But it's God who has given us the ability to work. It's God who has given us a job. Especially in the economy that we're in right now. We need to be thankful for that. And say, Lord, I want to provide for my family. I need to to feed them, I need to clothe them, I need to put a roof over their head. Lord, I need to pay my bills. I need to take care of my responsibilities. But God, any extra money I have, whatever you've given to me, Lord, it is yours. I don't want to just spend it on my selfishness. God, I want to live simply so that I can give to you. 
I don't want to be selfish with my time, Lord. I want to arrange my time and schedule myself and be disciplined with my time so that I have time to serve you. And when given opportunities, I'm not going to say, I don't have time for that. Because certainly I have time to do whatever I want to do. I mean, we, we always have time, right? It's like you always have room for dessert. You always have time to do what you want. I mean, it's amazing how we can make stuff happen if we want to go hunting or if we want to go shopping or if you want to put together a round of golf or a night at the movies or whatever. We, we can finagle and we can arrange and we can get babysitters or we can tie up our kids. I mean, we, we can make it happen, right? If we want to get out and we want to get away. But then, hey, do you want to make a meal for somebody? They, they, they had a baby and they, they need um, a meal just to bless them. Oh, I don't have time for that. Really? Seriously? You don't have time for that? Come on. Uh, do, do you want to give to this opportunity? I, I don't have money for that. Really? We have money to do what we want to do. And I'm speaking to you as a peer because we all do this. We all make excuses. We're the king of excuses. Our time, our money, our gifts. We want our gifts not to point people to Jesus, point people to me. I want the glory. And God says, forsake all. Forsake your glory and, and people noticing you and use your gifts like me, your, the thing, your one trick ponyism. Use it for me, for my glory. Forsake yourself. Forsake your selfishness and follow me. Now we read these seven things that it's available to common, ordinary people. It's a response to experiencing Jesus and his teaching, that it's an act of obedience, that it's the work of God, that it's rooted in humility, that it's about loving people, that it involves sacrifice. And maybe you're thinking, wow, this is radical Christianity. Look, Christianity doesn't need descriptive terms. Christianity in and of itself is radical. It's extraordinary. It defies human logic. That's what you've been called to, is radical living. This is Christianity 101, guys. This isn't some next level, some higher teaching. This is the basics, the crux of Christianity. And we've got to get out of this self-consumed kind of lifestyle and truly follow Jesus. That's what we signed up for. And if you're not a Christian, I would not want to give you the impression that just come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. No, take up your cross and follow him. He's promised you eternal life. He'll bless you abundantly, exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ever ask or think. But he doesn't want you to come to him so that he can fix your marriage or that he can get you a job or he can make you popular. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about aligning yourself with Jesus. It's about putting yourself in a position where you're no longer in opposition to God, but that you're the friend of God, that you have a relationship with him. And it comes by surrender. It comes by forsaking all and following him. That's what he wants for you. And as we close this morning, you guys, as we give you an opportunity just to to worship, to sing, I surrender all, that's what I want you to do is to make this real in your own life, to truly be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And you guys, I don't want you to leave here this morning thinking, you know what? Ryan's right. I need to try harder. That's the last thing I want you to be thinking about. I want you to think about, you know what? God's already done it all for me. I just need to walk in it. But it 
comes by me emptying myself and surrendering my life to him and saying, Jesus, take me. I'm yours. Complete, reckless abandon. Let's stand together and and make that real. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.